0: Have you ever heard the phrase, get your bag before? Some of you guys have. It's very common uh, among athletes and musicians and things like that. It's what you say to someone when they sign a giant contract or they score a lucrative endorsement deal. People will tweet at them or they'll post on Instagram, get your bag, man. It's essentially like saying you went out and scored a big bag of cash for yourself. Good on you for getting Paid. This is kind of a, a huge focus among certain celebrity culture, but you know it's not just celebrities that are concerned with money, right? All of us worry about finances to one degree or another. It might be that you struggle to stretch your paycheck far enough each month to cover all of your bills. And so, you know, along about the 25th or something, you know, of every month, you're like, Lord, I'm going to need a loaves and fishes kind of miracle this month, all right? You're going to have to multiply the very little that I have. Have to cover all of the needs. It might be that uh, the interest rate on your mortgage has skyrocketed in the last year or two, and you're like, Jesus paid it all. Why are y'all coming after me? Okay. He said he was going to take care of all this, or it could be that your problem is slightly different. It might be that you're one of those people that have been successful financially. There are a few of you. God bless you for that. And you feel the weight and responsibility of using your money well, investing it in things that really really... really matter in the long term. So if you find yourself in any of those situations this morning, and probably all of us do, then I believe that God has a word for you this month in our new series called get your bag. See, one of the longest parables that Jesus ever told was on the subject of money. And this parable is so rich. It's so, it has so much depth and complexity to it. We're going to spend four straight weeks talking about the exact same passage of scripture, because there's really that much to glean from it. And in this, parable, Jesus lays out a mindset. He lays out a philosophy and an approach to spending, to saving, to money in general that, uh, that is so different from what most of us have believed about finances, either from what we've picked up from the culture or our families of origin or what we think the scripture does and doesn't teach on the subject. What he says is so revolutionary that if we were to start to put it into practice, then our perspective would shift, yes, but also our position, our circumstances, financial would shift as well. In this parable, Jesus outlines a money mindset that God blesses. Who doesn't want God's blessing on their finances? I know that I certainly do. If God is going to bless finances, I'm going to ask for his blessing on mine. So let's take a look at this very famous passage. It's often called the parable of the talents, the parable of the talents. Sometimes it's also called the parable of the three servants. We'll talk a little bit about why it gets to the name parable of the talent in just a moment. This, uh, this parable is told In Matthew chapter number 25, verses 14 to 29. It's a longer passage, second longest parable that Jesus ever told. And we can read uh, what he says here, beginning in verse number 14. Jesus says again the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and he entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave 5 bags of silver to one servant, 2 bags of silver to another, and 1 bag of silver to the last servant, dividing it in proportion to their abilities, he then left on his trip. Now before we move on, let's talk a little bit about this bag of silver. In the Greek language, and in many older translations of the Bible, like the King James and things like that, it says a talent. And a talent was a unit of money in the first century. It's a little bit like saying a grand, right? He gave a grand to one servant. He gave two grand to another servant. He gave three grand. But here's the deal. A talent was a whole lot more than a grand, all right? A talent was roughly the wages. It was an actual weight of silver, and it was roughly the value of 20 years Wages for the average day laborer. What that means is, for the average person, we're talking a million dollars, a million and a half, maybe two million dollars in modern funds. So when Jesus says the master gives one talent to this last servant, you're like, oh, poor guy, he got nothing. Are you joking? The dude got twenty years of salary. This was a lot of money. Now, of course, we don't use the the measure of a talent anymore. That word doesn't make sense to us. In fact, we've often flipped the word talent. We interpret it now in terms of like our abilities, our skills. And so I want us to, you know, if I say talent in this series, I am mostly referring to it in the financial sense, because that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. I want you to notice there in the verse we just read, it's not like the master's about to go onto his tri- uh, on his trip. He invites his servants to him and he says, okay, I'm going to entrust you with my talent. So I'm going to give you my talent for making bread. I'm going to give you my talent for painting. Well, no, he's talking about money. It says he entrusted his money to them. All right, let's keep reading here. He gives five bags to one, two bags to another, and three bags, or one bag, sorry, to the third. Now, verse 16 says, the servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more, doubled the investment. That's pretty stinking good. The servant who received two bags of silver also went to work and he earned two more. Now, he didn't make as much as the first guy, but he also doubled the in initial investment. Are you with me? He did just as well with the resources that he had been given. But, and anytime you see a but in the scripture, you're like, oh, I ought to pay attention. This is a pretty big but, actually. You're supposed to notice, yeah, I know what I said. This, you're supposed to notice here something's about to shift something's about to go wrong. We got two guys that have done incredibly well. And now we read the servant who received the one bag of silver, dug a hole in the ground and he hid the master's money. Now, after a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more. And he said, master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I have earned five more. In verse 21, we read the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful and handling this small amount. This is like a hundred years worth of wages. And the master says, you've been faithful with this small amount. I'm going to give you many more responsibilities. We'll talk about this next week. So let's celebrate together. Some older translations say, welcome into the joy of your master. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. And the master said, well, the other guy made three more than you. Why, why is it that you only made two? No, he doesn't say that. He says, also, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Notice he gives the exact same praise. Not a single word of difference between the guy who doubled the five talents and the guy who doubled the two talents. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, master, I knew you were a harsh man. (laughs) Was the master really a harsh man? He just gave this guy 20 years worth of salary. He said, I trust you so much. Here's a million and a half dollars. And I trust that you're going to do something good with it. The, The servant here fundamentally misunderstood the master's character. He said, I know know you're a harsh man. You're exacting. You have high expectations. He says, I knew you were a harsh man. Harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. He says, you just have a knack for making money. And he says, I was afraid that I would lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. So look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and I gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank? Then I could have at least gotten some interest on it. So the master ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver to those who use well, what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an increasing abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will itself be taken away. Oh, God bless the reading of your word. Help us to hear your, your truth in this. Okay, I've told you in the past that a parable is a fictional story that's designed to teach us about ourselves and God, okay? So in every parable that you read, there's going to be one character that is meant to represent God, and there is either one character or multiple characters that are meant to represent us. This is an earthly story, but it's got a heavenly or a deeper meaning behind it, all right? So if uh, one character is meant to represent God, who is it in this passage this is a really easy one. Master. It's the master, okay? Uh, yeah, the, the Greek word there is Lord, So he can't really be a little more direct than he is. All right. The master is the one who is going away on a long journey. And we know that this is specifically Jesus, that he's speaking of himself in this parable, because we read in the book of Acts that after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven, but he promises us that one day he's going to come back. You know that, right? This is central to our faith. This is one of the core and key doctrines to what we believe that one day Jesus is going to physically return to the earth. in the same way that he was physically present on the earth in the first century. So Jesus is the master who is gone on a long trip, but one day will return. Before he leaves, he gathers together all of his servants. That's me and you and James and John and every other Christian around the world that's ever lived. And he entrusts to them his resources to use in his service while he is absent. We are the servants in this story. Jesus is the master. So if we're the servants, the question becomes, are we the good servants, the first two to whom he said, well done, good and faithful servant, or are we the last one in which he says, Ooh, you wicked and lazy guy, which servant are we? What's the difference between these two servants? I mean, you might say, well, obviously it's what they had because they all had differing amounts and it's what they did because the others invested and doubled the investment and the last." guy didn't do anything. He hit it. But can I tell you, that's actually not the most important thing. That's not the biggest difference between these two groups of men in this parable. The biggest difference is not in what they had or what they did. It's in the way they thought. It's in their perspective. It's in their mindset. Their philosophy when it comes to finance is exactly what differentiates them from one to another. You see, the first two servants understood something that the third one did not. And that's this. God is the owner. I am the manager. God is the owner. I am the manager. First two servants in the story understood that perfectly perfectly. The master was the source of the wealth that they received. He was the director of the wealth that they received because it was actually his in the first place, right? They knew that they were accountable to him in how they used the money. He was going on a long trip, but one day he was gonna return and they were gonna have to answer for how they used the money that they had been entrusted with. They were crystal clear on the fact that the finances that they had been given ultimately belonged to the master. And for as long as they had it, The only reason they had it was to manage it in a way that the owner approved of. Are you following what I'm saying here? We need to have the same mindset. God is the owner. I'm just the the manager. God's the master. I'm the manager. Notice what God says in Psalm chapter number 50, verse 12. This is kind of a funny verse, but man, is it a little uncomfortable. Psalm 50, verse 12. God says, if I were hungry... I wouldn't tell you, for all the world is mine, as well as everything in it. I don't need you to cook me a steak. I own the cattle on a thousand hills, guys. If I needed something, I wouldn't come to you. I'm the owner of it all. Now, if God owns it all, how much do I own? Nothing. Oh, I told you it's a little uncomfortable. (laughs) God is the owner. I am just the manager. It's been this way from the very beginning. Think about Adam and Eve. God places them in Eden. They have nearly this entire garden paradise to enjoy all to themselves. But that one forbidden tree served as a constant reminder they are not the owner of this garden. They are not the ones who planted the garden. They're not going to be in the garden forever. It's not their garden. They're the managers. They're the stewards. They're the caretakers. But God, the master, the owner of it all is the one who is really in charge. There's a real sense in which the first temptation that mankind ever faced was to treat God's things like my things. Oh, that's not God's tree. That's my tree. That's not his fruit. That's my fruit. We do the exact same thing today, don't we? oh man, I'm glad I only have nine toes instead of 10 because that's a little less stepping on the toes that I have to endure than you guys do. It's a true story. (laughs) Listen, a good steward, a good manager, steward and manager just mean the same thing. A good steward understands nothing is actually theirs. It's all on loan from the master. Your house is not really your house. You realize that, right? If you're, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, this is true, whether you acknowledge it or not, but as a Christian, you are supposed to acknowledge the fact that God is the one who owns the house that I live in, right? That sales commission, that's not yours. It belongs to God. Uh Uh-oh, that investment portfolio that you've been building for so many decades, guess what? That isn't yours. That really belongs ultimately to the master himself. The scripture says your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. A good steward realizes my dogs are not my dogs. They belong to the master who owns it all. By the way, people often ask me, one of the most common questions I get as a pastor, actually, they'll say, This has always bothered me, pastor. I'm wondering, will my dogs be in heaven with me someday? And my response is, yes, yours will. Mine are going to the other place, okay? They're bad. (laughs) Yours will be in heaven. All right, I'm off on a rabbit trail here. Listen, everything is owned by the master. Everything that you say is yours is actually his. Because one day you're going to die, or it's going to die and you're not going to take it with you. I had a pastor that used to say, this is kind of a Texas saying, I don't know, maybe this is too Southern, but he says, have you ever noticed that no hearse pulls a (laughs) (laughs) U-Haul? You can't take it with you when you go. One day you'll leave it all behind. It belongs to him, not to us. Listen to how the apostle Paul puts it in first Corinthians chapter number four, verse seven. He says this, what do you have that you did not receive? And since you have received it all, why do you boast as though it wasn't a gift from God? Mm. Mm. (laughs) I know there are a lot of you guys and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Okay. wait, wait, Wait a sec. Wait a sec. God doesn't pay my mortgage. Okay. You say he owns my house, but he doesn't pay the mortgage. God didn't work that extra shift for me last week. I'm the one that had to pick up the extra shift so that I would have the money to pay the mortgage. God didn't close that big deal for my company. That was me. That was all my hard work. You're saying, I don't know about the rest of these people. Okay. But I work, I earn my money. It is mine because I'm the one that's actually generating it. And I get where you're coming from. Listen, that's an understandable mindset. And the Israelites way back in the old Testament, they faced the same temptation. There was this moment in which they had left. They'd been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and they had been wandering around the wilderness, but now they're about to move into the promised land. This is a land overflowing with milk and honey, God says. It's a place full of opportunity, rich in resources. And I want to listen, I want you to listen to what God says to them. Deuteronomy chapter number eight, verses 11 to 18. Hear what he warns them. He says to these people, beware that in your plenty, you do not forget the Lord, your God. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when you have flocks and herds and they've become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, relax and enjoy, baby, you made it. Finally, you can kick back, put your feet up, enjoy the good lot. No, God says, when everything is going right, Be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord, your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. And then he starts to list all of these things that God did for them throughout the book of Exodus. He says, do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with his poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness of food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and to test you for your own good. He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord, your God, he is the one who gives you the power to even be successful. Yeah. You work for your wealth. No doubt. Some of you work really hard. Many of you work a lot harder than I do, okay? We shake your hand, I shake your hand on Sunday morning, and I'm like, this dude works for a living, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, 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 I act like I wear gloves or something, oh, it's just like, my hands are so soft compared to some of yours. Some of you work really hard. Some of you carry pressure that none of us will ever fully understand. The weight of your employee's livelihood or the, the board their expectations, or just the needs that your family carries. I know that you work hard for your wealth, but can I remind you, God is the ultimate source of everything you have. Yeah. Who gave you your business aptitude? Cause your sister doesn't have it. So it's not genetic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so who gave it to you? Huh? Um, who opened the door for you to work at that firm? You, you know, that you were underqualified. And there were a lot of other people that were more qualified and yet somehow you ended up with the job. Who gave you that job that pays you six figures every year? Okay. Who blessed you with a strong body so you could go out and frame homes day after day after day? Yeah, you work hard for it, but the source of all of it is ultimately the master. God is the one who makes any of it possible. He is the owner of everything that we possess. You know what else I love about this passage from Deuteronomy? I love this passage. It calls us out, calls me out. Okay. We have no problem with the idea that God is the owner and he's in control of it all. When my financial life is a wreck it's easy to pray. God, you got to intervene. You got to step in. You got to bless. You got to miraculously provide for me. You're the owner, God. The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. You do own the cattle on a thousand hills, plus all the gold and silver underneath. We have no trouble when we're in trouble saying, God, you're in charge. But when life is good, It's a little different then, isn't it? It's like, well, wait, wait, God, no, no. I mean, I worked hard for this, okay? This is my bonus this year. I'm the one that earned this bonus. And so if I want to spend it this way, I should be able to because it's mine. Hey, which is it? We don't get to choose when God is the master and when he's not the master. We don't get to choose when he's the owner or when we want him to stay out of our business. We can't do that. What's the word we would use for somebody who viewed God that way? Now, I'm not going to say it. I just want you to say it in your own heart, okay? It's an H word. We have no problem saying, God, I, I, I I want you in my financial life when things are bad. We have to be willing to say the same when things are good. In fact, I would argue, and I'm, I'm going to do my best to show you this throughout this series, that God's blessing on your finances doesn't start when things are bad. It starts when things are good. Yeah. Like if you're, if you're in a bad spot right now, I believe that God loves you. He cares for you. He has a good plan for you. I actually believe that he can miraculously, inter, miraculously intervene and bail you out. I bet he's done it for you already in the past. But when you get into the good land... When you've built fine homes for yourself, when you've got all the cattle and herds or whatever the modern day equivalent is, when your gold and silver multiplies, when you get that promotion, when the stock market takes off, be careful. Do not forget the Lord your God. He's the one who even gave you the power to be successful. Amber and I own a house in Florida. Um, we built this house. I think we got a picture of the house. We put it on the screen for you. It's a cute little Florida bungalow. Yeah that's our place there. We built it from the ground up and we got to choose, you know, every little detail and stuff. Man, building a house is stressful, you guys, but I won't get into that. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, Mostly just like, is this going to look good or is it going to be ugly? I have no idea. I'm just, anyway. So we built this house and there's a lot that we love about it. It's a good sized lot. It's got a big privacy fence in the backyard. See that cute little palm tree there in the front. That's Amber's second favorite part of the house. That palm tree, she loves that palm tree so much. Now we don't live at that house in Florida because that'd be a heck of a commute. You with me? Um, So we have tenants that live in our house right now. Somebody we found on Zillow or something like that. And he rents the house from us. Great tenant, love him, takes good care of it. But suppose that our tenant at our house there in Florida says, I don't really like this privacy fence that you guys paid $7,000 to put in. It kind of blocks my view of everything that's going on in the backyard. So I just went ahead and took the initiative. I had it torn up and tossed. So now you don't have a fence in your backyard anymore. How do you think I as the owner would feel if my tenant sent me that email? I'd be furious. What if the tenant said, you know what? I don't really, um, I don't, I don't take baths. Um, I'm a shower kind of guy. And I notice you have this giant garden tub in your master bedroom. That's Amber's first favorite thing in the house. (laughs) Palm tree second, garden tub is first. And he said, I I don't need this bathtub. It's taking up space. I would actually like to have a larger shower enclosure. So I went ahead and ripped out the bathtub and I built a bigger shower. Amber would lose her mind, you guys. (laughs) She would sooner live in a house without a roof than a house without a bathtub, okay? (laughs) Nobody would let a tenant treat their house that way. Why? Because the tenant doesn't own it. The owner owns it. The tenant's just managing it, stewarding it. They're responsible for it. And they have to do with it what the manager approves of. They have to do with it what the manager is okay with. If ever they choose not to, they get evicted. They lose the resource that they had been given, which is exactly what happened to this bad steward at the end of the parable. Take from the one who didn't do anything with it and give to the one who has. If we misuse the resources the master and owner gives us, We should only expect one thing in the end, to lose what we've been entrusted with. This is exactly the mistake that the wicked servant committed. I want you to look back at verse 25. Look back at verse 25. When the master's gone, he's come back. The final servant stands before the master. He's giving an account for how he managed the money he had been entrusted with. And when he, when he stood before him to explain or excuse his mismanagement of what he had been given, he says, he claimed he was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid I was going to lose it. You can understand here, right? I was afraid. But the master calls him out on it. He says, no, wait a sec. Wait a sec. This doesn't make sense to me. See, if you were really afraid, then I would expect like, you don't want to lose the money, but you could still invest it safely. You could have gone to the bank, given it to the bank, just like savings accounts today, they would have paid interest on that. And when I came back, you could have withdrawn the talent that I give you plus all the interest. So why didn't you at least go deposit it in the bank? And and that's a really good question here. Okay. I want you to consider for just a moment. It actually took the third servant more time and effort to dig a hole in his backyard hide the money, forget about it for decades than it would have been to swing by the bank on his way home from the grocery store. So why didn't he at least do that? Now the Bible doesn't tell us, but I don't think it's a big leap to consider the fact that banks keep records. Banks keep records. I don't think that the third servant wanted there to be any record record of his ownership of that talent, his possession of that talent. See, if he took that talent and he took it to the bank, he would have to say, now, Roman government, I got this from my man. You know, this is true, right? Like we get um, like birthday checks from our family in the States, right? And we have really generous family members. Maybe they send us $500 or something, whatever, right? So I show up with $500 to TD bank and they're like, where's this come from? Is this money laundering? Are you a drug dealer? Where's this come from? (laughs) I'm like, it's from my freaking grandmother. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Same thing, right? If he showed up with his talent, this is one and a half million dollars. He showed up, the bank would say, where did that money come from? You're a servant, you're a house servant. where did you get that kind of money? You'd have to say, oh, my manager, my owner, my master, Jeff gave me this to put on deposit until he gets back. That money is then locked in forever. Everybody knows it's Jeff's. And when Jeff comes back, he gets that money. But if the third servant hides the talent, nobody knows he has it. The only one that knows he hasn't is the master. What I believe is going on here. Is that the third servant is banking on the fact that the master is never going to return? Wow. He thinks this guy's going to die on his journey. He's going to get cholera. He's going to die. And word's eventually going to make it back that my master has died in some far foreign land. Nobody knows that I have 20 years' salary stashed in my backyard. And he is going to become the owner of the talent. I think this is why when we go to the next verse, verse 25, the master confronts him and he doesn't say, Oh, you fearful servant. He says, you wicked and lazy servant wicked. Doesn't that seem like an overreaction? Not if this guy was planning on keeping that money for himself. Can I be pastorally prophetic for just a moment? There are a whole lot of you guys that deep down in your heart don't believe the master's ever coming back. That you'll never have to give an account for how you use your finances. That you'll never have to answer for whether or not you used what had been entrusted to you in line with the master's wishes. You really think you're going to get away. You think, well, if there ever is an accounting in some way, shape, or form. I got to go through some kind of reckoning. Um, You know... God gets it. He understands. I'm just going to kind of shrug my shoulders and say, you know, like, I did my best, God. I did my best. It wasn't really my fault, you know? It was like the economy. The economy was bad in my day, right? It was just like hard. I don't know. I, I just used it in the best way that I possibly. It wasn't my fault. It was my company's fault. You know, they took advantage of me. They, they hurt me. They ripped me off. They cheated me. It wasn't really my fault. It was my spouse's fault. God, you know that I really wanted to, but they wouldn't let me. And so listen, you think you're going to be able to shrug your shoulders and and just get away from it all and say, it wasn't really my fault. But is that really true? Is that really true? Like who leased that car that causes you so many sleepless nights right now? I mean, that was your signature on that contract, right? Like, okay. Who was it that decided to wait until their fifties to start saving for retirement? That that was your choice. That's not the economy's fault. Am, am, I, am I getting too close? To, am I being too direct? Am I being mean today? I'm not trying to. Here's the thing, okay? The master says he's coming back. We're gonna spend a whole week talking about what the accounting process is gonna be look like, it's gonna look like when he comes back. And it's not what you think it is. But the master's coming back. There will be a reckoning and an accounting. Remember I told you last week, my responsibility as a pastor is to watch over your souls, that I'm going to give an account for how you grew, what you understood, how obedient you were or you weren't. So if I fail to tell you that, yeah, the master's been gone a long time, but that doesn't mean he ain't coming back. When he comes back, you'll stand before him and you will give an accounting for how you use the resources that were entrusted to you. If I never tell you that, then that's on me. But today I'm telling you, so now it's on you, okay? (laughs) Okay. All right, I don't want to pick on you too much because there's still three more weeks to do that. Um, (laughs) The difference, the difference between the good servants and the bad servants was not financial acumen. It wasn't good investment strategy. It wasn't profligate generosity. The difference between the two was mindset. Understanding God is the owner. I'm just the manager of it all. So let me leave you with a, a couple, two quick questions for reflection. I, you're just going to, w- I want you to just answer this in the honesty between you and God. You're not going to turn to your neighbor and share any of this, but like, Hey, let's reflect on these. Okay. So the first question is this, is there any evidence for God in my financial life? Any hint, any clue that God is important to me when it comes to my finances? Um, if we were to look at your banking app, we would learn an awful lot about you. Would we see God present Anywhere in there. Now, I know that when the pastor says that, usually it's like, okay, here comes the pitch. You got to start tithing. That's your evidence. Yes, and it's more than that. See, if I were actually looking at somebody's banking app and I were trying to assess the spiritual health of their financial life, I know that's a weird phrase, isn't it? The spiritual health of your financial life. If I were assessing that, I would be looking at several things. I would say, is there like, healthy and appropriate savings going on. Did you know Proverbs 21:20 20 says this, "The wise store wealth and luxury, but fools spend every dollar they get." I'd ask, like, what's your debt load? Do you carry a lot of consumer and re- revolving debt in particular? Do you have multiple car payments plus the mortgage plus the, the student loans plus the credit cards plus, you know, I'd be asking about your debt load. Uh, Proverbs 22, seven tells us the borrower becomes slave to the lender. Some of you guys feel that right now. I- I'd be looking at whether you gladly give to those who are in need around you. Almsgiving is the old word for it. When somebody says, hey, I need help. Are you able, are you willing to say, here, I can help. Here's, here's 20 bucks. Here's a toonie. Here's 200. Let me pay your rent this month. I'd be asking that. Proverbs 19, 17 says, those who give to the poor lend to the Lord and the Lord will repay them. Do you give regularly and generously to Christ's church? Malachi 3 tells us that we rob God when we fail to pay him what he's due. From our finances. If we don't bring our tithe into the storehouse, God says, you're robbing me. You, you'll you give an account. I'm going to give an account for the years that I did not tithe. So will we all. The sheer number of, of Christians who don't give anything directly to God boggles my mind. If I'm just real, like if you're not a Christian, okay, cool. I get it. No expectation there. Maybe there's a reason not to become a Christian. Because once you do, you have to acknowledge he's the owner, you're just the manager. So like, here, here's um, here's an exercise maybe that you could do. Pull up your banking app, look at your expenses each month, and I want you to rank in total amount or cost who gets what. Of course, your rent's probably going to be the highest. And for most of us it's going to be car payments and then food and then kids sports and, you know, all those different things. All I want you to do is this. When you start to put things in order, note who and how how many get more than God month in, month out. Prepare to be uncomfortable because there's some of you guys that give more money to Netflix than you give to God. There's some of you guys that give more money to liquor store than you ever give to God. There are some of you guys that give more money to and insert whatever you want. The freaking Canadian government gets many multiples over what God gets. And I know you got to pay them. I'm not telling you not to. Okay. I don't need the CRA breathing down my back. <laughs> I, here, here's why I'm okay saying this sort of stuff today. A, because I'm talking to those of you guys who are believers. So there comes a time and a place where we got to deal with this. You've put it off for a very long time. This series is going to be the moment where some of you guys are like, I'm tired of this, tired of living this way. I'm tired of saying, God, you can have all of me except my wallet. (laughs) And so I want to help. Second thing is, and I'll share a little bit more about this um, in, in another message. I've been on both sides of this. I've been the pastor who didn't tithe to his own church, not to connect in the past. And I had to learn some lessons the hard way. I'm like, oh God, the money's already been tithed on. Why should we double tithe on that? And uh, my bills are too great. And God, I've already made sacrifices. You know, I'm making a lot less working for your church than I would make if I worked in the business world. I had all the excuses in the world. I was on the wrong side of it. It took my wife to help me get right. And once I did, I will never go back. Never go back. I, I can say all of this with full confidence and free conscience because I know I'm practicing what I'm preaching here. Okay. If I were to check your bank app or somebody were to check your bank app, would there be any evidence for God in it? If not, then maybe it's time to address that on some level. Uh, Second question is this. Do I expect money to give me things that only God can provide? See, this is where we get twisted when it comes to our finances is we we don't look at money as a tool to accomplish good in the world. We look at money as the tool to give us the life that we've always wanted. We, We ask money to give us things that it can provide in very small doses, but it can't do consistently and it certainly won't do eternally. Some of us go to money to give ourselves security. These are the savers usually. It's like, no, 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 I never have enough in my bank account. You, you get your security from your money. The scripture warns us against that. Self-esteem. Well, if I have a, a, a significant amount in my bank account, that means I'm a success, right? Gives us self-esteem. Gives us joy. Man, some of you guys get way more excited buying a new iPhone every year than you ever had in the house of the Lord. Uh, I was talking to me there. I'm sorry, it's just, you know, it's like, man, why do I get so excited about an incremental upgrade? Hope. I could go on and on and on. Listen, this is the reason that Jesus said, You cannot serve God and money. It's the only thing Jesus ever said that about. You realize that? He's like, you can't serve God in sex. He never said that. I'm not saying that he means you can serve them both. I'm just saying the only thing he ever specified that you cannot serve, you cannot have two masters, you cannot serve God in money. Why? Because for most of us, money is going to be God's chief rival for our affections. So do I expect money to give me the things that only God can provide? Has money become an idol to me? What do Christians do when they discover idols in their life? They smash them. And they restore Jesus to his rightful place. As the master, the owner, the Lord of their lives. And and again, not to tip my hand too much on, on a future message, but can I just tell you, once you do that there is a sense in which life becomes a whole lot easier. Yes. Isn't it like, like amazing to be generous without any guilt? It is. Isn't it amazing that when I sit in a chair and I hear about all the cool stuff Connect's doing, I'm not like, well, I'm glad somebody's making it possible. No, I'm making it possible. There is, is, there is a freedom in this, you guys. Knowing that when I stand before the master, I'm not going to be perfect, but he's going to say, well done. Took you a while to get there, dum-dum, but you got there. (laughs) Well done, good and faithful servant. Now I want to give you more resources to manage. Welcome into my pleasure. Let's celebrate together. That's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. The only way we're going to get there, though, is to start to be honest and to acknowledge he's the owner. I'm just the manager. God, we confess today that we have too often fooled ourselves into thinking that it's ours. It's not. It's not. So God, I surrender all of it to you today. I offer you my finances. I offer you my family. I offer you my home. I offer you my body. I offer you my mind. I offer you my health. God, I offer you my worship. I submit and surrender every bit of it because it's always been yours to begin with. I pray, God, that you would forgive me, even today, for the ways that I still mismanage the resources that you've entrusted to me. God, would you help me to do better? Would you help me to learn the scriptural principles and, God, rely on the leadership of the Holy Spirit to do what you call me to do? And, God, could you help me to use what I've been given in a way that makes an eternal difference in the world around me? God, I'm asking you that you would set some people free this series from the love of money.